the wonder of these things through the testimony of your word. Father, we know that when things are repeated to us in your word, it is for the purpose of emphasis. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the emphasis here is placed upon the faith of Joseph, that you would show us by your grace how to translate it into the testimony of faith in our own lives. Be with us now, Lord, for Christ's sake, which in his name we pray. With the last breath, uh, French grammar expert Dominique Lavoie said, I am about to, or I am going to, die. Either expression is used. And then she died. But the last thing she did was bring up the fact that there were two ways of saying this. I am about to, or I am going to. Either expression is acceptable and then die. What a person says at the end of his or her life is either memorable or it's not. But if they have the presence of mind to reflect coherently, they often try to be profound. Davy Crockett's last written words from the Alamo were liberty and independence forever. What a simple last testament. But it's the last words of believers that we love best. Joseph Alim, who was just such a man, had been arrested and charged in his day with holding a riotous assembly. The meeting that he was riotous assembly, the meeting was nothing more than what you and I are doing here this morning, what we've done so far. Worship the Lord in song and prayer and in preaching the word. But he was remanded to jail for doing that. And though later he was acquitted by the court, the authorities refused to release him. They kept him in jail despite the fact that he had been acquitted. And in August of 1663, a grand jury indicted him. They charged that in the month of May, he, together with 20 others, quote, to the jurors unknown, did riotously and seditiously assemble themselves together, contrary to the peace of our sovereign Lord the King, and to the great terror of his subjects, and to the evil example of others, etc., etc., etc. By holding a service just like this, the grand jury claimed that he had brought a, a disturbance to the King and terrorized the king's subjects and the evil example of the rest of the world. After two prolonged imprisonments, Aline's body was broken, and he was obviously headed home to the world. For two nights, and his friends lifted him up in prayer. On the third day, Wonderfully, his mind cleared, his body strengthened, and he relaxed, and he was able to speak with his friends. And that's how we have his last words. They were, oh, how sweet will heaven be. Looking at his hands, he said, these shall be changed. This vile body 
shall be made like unto Christ's glorious body. Oh, what a glorious day will the day of resurrection be. Methinks I see it by faith. How the saints lift up their heads and rejoice on that great day of resurrection. And with those words, God took him and Joseph of Hades Moses had written a long account of the patriarchs in the Pentateuch, written it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Beginning with Abraham, he told the stories of them all, covering hundreds of years of history, all the way down to Joseph. And the last thing that Moses chooses to write about these patriarchs is the last wish of Joseph made on his deathbed. It's in Genesis 50, beginning of verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And then verse 26 tells us that he died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. John Calvin, commenting on these last words of Genesis, says, this is the last thing which Moses records respecting the patriarchs, and deserves to be particularly noticed. It's important for us as we begin to talk about this testimony of Joseph to realize that Joseph lived 54 years after his father died. And as one has observed, Year after year, during that time, he lived in high honor and under the blessing of the Lord. But you notice the scripture skips over it all. When you look at that last chapter of Genesis, you have Joseph in the contest with his brothers, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then it talks that that, and that scene ends. And then we skip 54 years to the death. All that enjoyment of honor in Egypt is skipped over. It covers the lot in a few sentences and then zeroes in on this final camera. Joseph forgives his brothers and he makes a great statement of, of faith towards them shortly after Jacob's death. If you go back to verse 19 of uh, Genesis 50, you read there that Joseph said to his brothers, Do not fear, for I am the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your rules, thus he comforted them spoke kindly to And then a few statements were made about God's faithfulness and blessing and were brought to his deathbed, which once more 
where once more he gives evidence of his We're looking at these testimonies of faith from Hebrews chapter 11. And this is uh, verse 22 that we're looking at this morning. But as we think about that context, I want you to think first of all about the time. Let's consider a few things about the timing of, of this event uh, when he says, be sure to carry my bones out of you. Um, the time in Joseph's life, this is his dying hour. No one in Bible history had a more adventurous life than Joseph. But the great chapter of faith that is teaching us to focus in on the faith of individuals, that great chapter reflects on this moment, the moment when Joseph is dying. John A. James observes that Joseph diffused happiness around him and saw his father's house and his own descendants greatly multiplied. But as neither station nor power nor wealth nor piety nor all these combined can preserve the stroke of death, Joseph laid down his honors at the feet of the king of terrors and was gathered to his father. And all that uh, James is saying there is that despite all the authority and all the power and all the adventures that Joseph had, there came a day when he was called the day of his death. And like all men, this hero of the faith comes to the end of his life in this world. And notice, beloved, how this testimony comes at the end of Joe, Joseph's long, adventurous life when he's at the pinnacle of his nobility and of his power. Notice how at his death, despite that, Joseph is not concerned with any memorial to himself or to his faithfulness. He's concerned with the promises of God. I was just reading this week an article in Archaeology Magazine about uh, a grave that's just been opened in Egypt of a man who held a similar position to the position of Joseph. And they're just getting into his tomb. And uh, they've gotten into some of the upper areas of the tomb. And uh, it's lavish and it's grand. It has an opening area and then it has a temple. And then it has, it's laid out like a temple. It has a grand open room. And in this grand open room, the walls are covered with. Um, all sorts of pictures, and there are pillars, big pillars, in this tomb. And on each of the pillars is a tribute to something that this man contributed to Egypt, some position he held, and how he carried out that position. And there's seven of them in this tomb. And they haven't even gotten to the burial part. This is just like the entryway to his tomb, where you find all of these things. Joseph could have ordered a pyramid, a great pyramid, or a noble tomb to be erected in his honor. But he didn't, because Joseph served God, and he was concerned with God's honor, and not his own. The covenant faithfulness of God is on Joseph's heart as he's dying. And he's concerned that the people remember the word of God more than the life of Joseph. He's not concerned to remember all the great things he did and, and, and the way that he served them. 
What he's concerned with is that they remember the covenant of God, the covenant promises of the Lord. We know how God used them. Not because he sought to be memorialized, but because God chose to honor him with that narrative in Genesis. That's why we know all the things he did. It's not because we can go to Egypt and see some great tomb where the walls are decorated with all the things that Joseph did, with the story of his life and, and great pillars to, to his service to, to Pharaoh. Not because it's in Egypt, it's because it's here. The word of God. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. We read, Now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be like these. Joseph is honored and remembered not because of what he had built in Egypt to his memory, but because of what the Lord preserved in his story. Because Joseph served and honored the Lord. When death draws near, beloved, it's good to dwell on the Word of God. It serves others well too. At that moment, it's more important what God has done and what God has promised He, promised he will do than what you and I have done. It's more important to focus on Joseph, by faith, fixed his own eyes and the eyes of all those who heard him on God and His promises. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 13, it says, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, when he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, <clears throat> to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. It's those things that Joseph once remembered at his death. And that promise is an emblem of a still greater promise. The greater promise to Abraham. If we take the promise of Abraham, we can look at it in its different parts. But actually, we want to just consider two parts this morning of all that was promised to him. The first part has to do, and they're both referred to here in Hebrews, but it has to do with his promise to them regarding the land. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, it's spoken in this way. By faith, he that is Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. We're then told that Abraham and his descendants lived as strangers and exiles on the earth because they were still seeking that promised homeland and they were never settled in this world because they were looking for that city whose builder and designer and maker is God. In verse 16 of Hebrews 11, 
it says, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the promised city referred to by Christ, the Messiah. When he spoke to his disciples in John chapter 14, and he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So all of that is a part of the great promise and hope that is given to Abraham by covenant. But in the course of time, there would also come an event that would seem to derail this promise. If the possession of the physical promised land, the emblem of the great promise that Christ speaks of, was lost, and if the descendants of Abraham, rather than being a great independent nation, were reduced to slavery in a foreign land, then what happens to the greater promise? What becomes of that greater promise? And where is the guarantee or hope that the greater promise will be fulfilled? If they lose possession of the physical promised land, then where's the hope that the spiritual land promised by God will ever be theirs? If I give you a dollar today, and I pledge that I'll give you a million tomorrow, but I came back there this afternoon and told you, you know that dollar I gave you? Well, I need it back because I have some debts to pay. How are you going to feel about that promise about tomorrow? that tomorrow I'm going to show up with a million dollars to give you if I've got to get the dollar back from you today. You might have some doubts about it. In this case, however, God told Abraham long before the events unfolded that they would encounter trouble, but that he would deliver them and fulfill his promise. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 12. This is still long before the days of Joseph. Long before Jacob ends up in Egypt. Genesis 12, 15. The sun was going down and the deep sleep fell on Abram. He hasn't even received his new name yet. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for a certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants or slaves there. And they shall be afflicted, beaten down, oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's this promise, beloved, made to Abraham before Jacob 
before Isaac. It's this promise made to Abraham, securing the still greater promise that was handed down to Joseph as a covenant child of Abraham and which he believed and he confessed on his deathbed. And it's the faith of Joseph in the word of God that's referenced here in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22. His confidence in those words spoken to Abram that they would fall into this period of darkness but they would be delivered from it and God would bring them back into the land of promise according to his word. And Joseph has his faith in those words. And it's remarkable to see the faith of Joseph here. Remember the definition of faith that we're dealing with. The definition of faith that we're dealing with here comes from Hebrews chapter 11, back up in verse 1. Verses 1 and 6 brought together. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's start off with the things not seen. This is the assurance of things hoped for we'll come to in a moment. But let's address first the conviction of things not seen possessed by Joseph. When Joseph died, what was the condition of Israel? They were enjoying great freedom in Egypt. Not only great freedom, but special regard among the Egyptians. Joseph, in his lifetime, did not see any of the affliction of his people that God spoke to Abraham about. At the moment where he's about to expire... He looks around, and what's the state of the situation? <laughs> well, this is great. We're here. They're in the land of Goshen. Our, our flocks are, are growing. We ha- I have authority. I'm second in Egypt in authority. These are the, the, the great days of Israel's presence in the land of Egypt. They've just buried Jacob 50 years earlier, and everybody in Egypt made a great procession up to the promised land to bury Jacob up there. And it was a, the whole country shut down to honor his father. There's no affliction. There's no suffering yet. And yet God said it was coming. And Joseph believed it was coming. And that God was going to deliver them from it. It wasn't something he would see in his lifetime. But he believed that they would one day need deliverance. Deliverance from the hand of God. In fact, if he was as informed about the covenant promises as we believe he must have been, he knew that his family would be in Egypt for 400 years, at the end of which they would not only know affliction and slavery, but they would need the interpositioning of God to deliver them from it. So Joseph is convinced, according to the word and promise of God, that that there's no hint of any such thing at the moment. His people are going to be reduced to slavery, that God will deliver him, 
or deliver them, and he will restore them to the land of promise and fulfill all the still greater promises that all those things suggest and prefigure. And he says, therefore, take my bones with you. When that happens, when that day comes, that God has foretold, take my bones. And on the basis of that assurance, he makes them promise to take his bones with them when they go. Not if they go, but when they go. Joseph's testimony here stands in contrast to that of his father on the same issue. In contrast to his father. Robert Candlish puts it this way. Mere natural affection and the touching memory of the olden time may to a large extent explain what Jacob said on the subject. Joseph, on the other hand, has his eye exclusively fixed on what is hoped for and what is unseen. If you go back and read the story of Jacob's own going back, you'll see that. It's a nostalgic thing with Jacob. It's a faith thing with Joseph. He doesn't say just take them anywhere, but to the promised land where his father and Abraham lived as strangers and pilgrims, looking for a city whose foundations, a heavenly city, whose foundations and design and builder was God himself. We go back to Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, The Lord will surely, or God will surely visit you, to deliver you, and you will carry up my bones from here. John Owen says the frame of his spirit was now that he was dying. There was a sufficient indication of what it was in the whole course of his life. He's not solicitous about the disposal of his wealth and revenues, which no doubt were very great, but his mind is wholly on the promise and thereby on the covenant with Abraham. We assume he had a will of some kind, but in his last words, he doesn't say, make sure you dispose of that will exactly as I've said. He doesn't say that. He says, make sure when God does what God has promised, you take me with you. Now, this all translates this faith down into actions on the part of Joseph. And if we're tasked to come up with a simple description of Joseph, many things might come to mind. But the one description that I believe fits him best is that of servant. Servant. That's Joseph's life. He's a servant. A faithful servant. He was a faithful servant to all. In fact, that's all we ever see him being. Despite his father's favor, despite his dreams, despite his persecution at the hands of his brothers and others, despite his high station in Egypt, and even in his death, what we see is a servant. In regards to his father, 
Joseph served his father well from the beginning. At 17, he was in the fields keeping his father's sheep and doing a responsible job of it. You remember he got into trouble because he comes home to his father and he says, I need to tell you about what your other sons are doing. And the jealousy begins. But he's doing it responsibly. He sees that they're being irresponsible. He knows his father's trusting them and he wants them, he wants them to be held accountable. When his older brothers are off caring for the sheep, we read this in Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 13. I didn't put all the text here in the, in the notes for you because it would have made the notes so long. But this is the context of the verse highlighted there. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, that is Joseph said to his father, Here I am. Here I am. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he went from the valley of Hebron, he came to Shechem, and of course you know, if you have a Sunday school education about the life of Joseph, that uh, they weren't there, they were somewhere else, and Joseph went to where they were. But I want you to see the servant attitude here towards his father. Here I am. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve? Joseph found favor in his sight. And then he went into and was sold into Egypt. And goes into Potiphar's house. An officer under Pharaoh. And Joseph serves this man so faithfully that we're told that finding favor in his sight and the way he attended him, Potiphar made Joseph overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything. But the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. But look at that. Potiphar, having such a, 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 a reliable servant in Joseph, that he doesn't have to worry about anything except what he's going to eat. And that's it. When Potiphar's wife would betray her husband, it's the servant Joseph who serves Potiphar faithfully and refuses her advances even to his own hurt. You know, as a result of that, he's now remanded to jail. When Joseph is imprisoned because of the unfaithful woman's life, lies, he becomes sullen and bitter and uncooperative and a real problem in the jail. Yes or no? No. No, right. He becomes a faithful servant in the prison. So much so that we read in Genesis thirty-nine twenty-two, and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So he was 
a faithful servant to his father. He was a faithful servant to his brothers. He was a faithful servant to Potiphar. He was a faithful servant to those he came across in prison. When he's finally approached by Pharaoh for the understanding of his dreams, Joseph serves, serves both Pharaoh and the Lord faithfully there. And look at how he does it. When Pharaoh wants to give him the credit for understanding dreams, Joseph says, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Do you see that as faithful service to Pharaoh and faithful service to the Lord? It's not me. It's God. And Joseph then further serves the great ruler of Egypt by dealing truthfully with him and When he's rewarded for doing so, he serves Pharaoh even more faithfully by being an efficient and loyal officer. And we all know that story. But he's also a servant to his family and his God. When his bitter and dishonest brothers were sent to Egypt by their father, though Joseph was in the perfect position to wring the most excruciating revenge out of them, He did not, but he served both them and God faithfully. He also continued to honor his father, though he may have held some resentment against him as well. But no, he serves him with honor and respect to the end. And that brings us back to the scene which we started with, where his lying brothers come to him after the death and burial of their father, with the story that Jacob told them to tell him not to hurt them now that he was dead. He didn't tell Joseph. He told the brothers, the guilty brothers, to tell Joseph not to do anything mean to him. And we know, and I've read it already, Joseph's response. His brothers come, they fall down before him, and they say, we're your servants. And Joseph says, don't fear, for am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil. God has meant it for good. It's the saving of many people alive. So do not fear. I will be a servant. I will provide for you and your little ones. I will be a servant to you and your children. Service all along the line. And even in this scene where his brothers promised to be his servants, Joseph serves them and God faithfully and promises to provide not only for them, but for their children and for their children's children. You see, beloved, Joseph always saw himself as God's servant right up to the very end. But as we mentioned a bit ago, this scene where he's dealing with his brothers and says he'll be a servant to them isn't the end. For 54 more years, Joseph does exactly what he promises. He serves God, he serves Pharaoh, he serves his brothers and his brother's children and his brother's children, children faithfully. And then we come to him on his deathbed. And he continues to serve them faithfully by what he requires here of them. He requires them not to forget what God has promised, 
And then, in believing that promise, to take his bones with them when they go. And in this matter, beloved, this matter regarding his bones, Joseph serves the whole church of Christ in every generation by his example of servant-like faith in God and in his promises. Now, there's a curious thing here. Doesn't it strike you curious, or as a curious thing, that of all the things that Joseph did by faith, and we love to go through those things. I just went through them a moment ago, and I don't think there was a story there that many of you were surprised by or had never heard before. You've heard them many times. But isn't it curious that out of all those things, this is the one the Holy Spirit chooses to hold up before you as the greatest example the order regarding his bones. But, but what about all those other things? What about all those other faithful service and, and all the great things he did and the humility that he showed and so on? Holy Spirit didn't choose any of them to put here in the chapter of faith. It's the matter regarding the bones. I think the reasons are many. But we can reflect on a few. First of all, I think this is set before us because Joseph would not be identified with Egypt, but with Israel. Not with the great culture of the pagan world, but with the great covenant of the living God. And that is an example to you and me of how to live in faith. Because, beloved, that's the calling of all who are in Christ Jesus. That's your calling. Not to be identified with the the great pagan culture of the world, but with the God of Israel and his word. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul's writing and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Now, I don't know if you can see this or not, but can you trace the same spirit here that Paul's talking about? Can you trace it in the story of Joseph? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to, to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. If you were going to give an example to children or to young people of a young man living godly in the present age and showing what it means to live godly in the present age, certainly Joseph would be on the list. He would be there. But that's him living in his his age. And this is us living in our age. And Joseph sets for us that example. And what does Paul say? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord. 
What did Joseph say about my bones? Put them in a box and save them here until the Lord appears and delivers us from all of this and brings us into the land of promise. Preserve my bones in that box and then take me with you when the Lord comes. Same sort of spirit, you see, of faith and confidence in the word of God and his promise to deliver. Beloved, we're not going to be loved for our godly living by the world. And if you're expecting that, you're going to be disappointed. But if we would serve them and our God well, this is how we will live in the world. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Would you say it was a description of Joseph? I think you could, couldn't you? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Does that sound like Joseph at all? Or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Just think about that statement. For who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And think back to Joseph talking to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You sought to do me evil, but God turned it to good. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I don't believe, as well, that Joseph's concern with his bones simply related to his burial, but to their future. It is said of all the descendants of Abraham by faith, that they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." The Egyptians had no concept of resurrection. They weren't trying to preserve bodies 
so that in the end they might somehow be restored to the owners? On the contrary, scholars state that they considered embalming an effort to preserve the body at its best as a sort of vessel for one of the three aspects of the souls of every individual. It was never believed by the Egyptians that those bones would rise. They were just supposed to be a stagnant vessel in which part of the soul rests. And that's why you have all the curses, you know, associated with Egyptian tombs. You go in, you disturb the vessel, and then the soul that's supposed to be resting in there gets very mad at you for doing that. Because you're supposed to leave that vessel alone. It's never supposed to be anything but a dead carcass in which this part of the soul rests. So they had no idea of the idea or the concept of, of uh, resurrection. Their idea of life after death is a hodgepodge of ideas and concepts, which one historical site says was the most hopeful of all the ancient religions. But in the same breath, they admit it was of no real comfort, and all the Egyptians feared to die. The assessment was made, of course, while ignoring the whole covenant history of Israel and the church, and that's why they say, oh, the Egyptians had the most hopeful uh, plan here. The point is, however, beloved, that Joseph had no intentions of having his body left in Egypt as if he were an adherent of that culture or any of its pagan views. He clearly believed what Abraham believed and confessed with Job. He knew that his Redeemer lived and that the last day he would stand upon the earth. And after his skin had been destroyed, Yet in his flesh he would see God, who he would see for himself, and his eyes would behold and not another. Joseph does not require the transport of his bones, which were carried for 40 years through the wilderness, from a superstitious principle, as if it were better or safer to molder in one place than another nor even from a principle of natural and relative affection. This was more than the language of nature, both in the Father and in the Son. For in them we behold not merely the natural desire of a man to rest in death with his fathers, but we see likewise the zeal, the piety, and the wisdom of the believer leaving to his family a solemn pledge of his dying confidence in the truth and the faithfulness of God. Joseph was intent on having his bones rest with those of the others who anticipated the eternal promises of God and not with those whose concept of eternity was superstitious and uncertain and more carnal than spiritual. Those who looked for an eternity without God, he looked for being with God. And so he says, when God visits you, Take my bones with you, because I want to be where the testimony of the truth of God is. And we, living in our own present age, have the opportunity to be absorbed, intimidated, crushed by the culture, or to stand out separately with our confidence and hope in the word of God.
And that's what the example of Joseph sets before us. And it's right down to this last moment. When I die, don't treat me. Don't treat me like those who have no hope. And I know that's the spirit of every one of you. I've gotten long letters from our brother, brother Gordy Hansen. He is contemplating the day when the Lord will call him home. And his one thing is, when I go, exalt Christ. When I go, preach Christ. When I go, talk about the goodness and the love of God that he's shown to me and there's the hope of men. Make that the centerpiece of all that is said and done. And that's the believer's testimony. But leading up to that moment is our confidence expressed in the word and the trust of God. And we do that by being good servants in the context of our homes, in the context of our church, in the context of our world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony and witness of Joseph. And we pray, Lord, that it would not just be a story full of adventures that makes us sit back and wonder, but, Lord, it may stand before us as it's intended to be, an example of living by faith. And we pray, Lord, that our faith would be such that it puts its confidence in you. Lord, none of us knows what a day may bring and when we'll be called home. But, Father, we look to be planted in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We want those who retire us to our graves to preserve those graves until the day when we are delivered by the hand of our good God. Father, we thank you for the love and the testimony that you've shown to us through Joseph and all who are in this list. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to work our way through it, that you will teach us what it means to live by faith in our own present age. We ask it for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.